Welcome to The Great Awakening. I'm your host, Josh Dawes. My guest today is someone I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while. Uh, She is the host of the Elisa Childers podcast and the author of a wonderful book on progressive Christianity called Another Gospel. She has written a new uh, book with Tim Barnett of Red Pen Logic called uh, The Deconstruction of Christianity. It is a, uh, a great book um, exploring, uh, really explaining the whole deconstruction phenomenon that seems to be um, gaining uh, momentum in, within you know, evangelical circles. And so it's a really timely book. It's very uh, important. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. If you haven't already, um, you know, we're back for a new year. We, I've got a lot of great guests coming up, a lot of uh, big things, I think, planned for the show this year. So uh, if you're not already uh, subscribed to it, go ahead and hit like and subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. Um, but, uh, you know, today's episode, I think you're really going to enjoy. We'll jump right into that after I tell you a bit about the Ezra Institute's Worldview Youth Academy. Hey, parents, are you ready to level up your teen's understanding of life, culture, and faith? Send them to the Worldview Youth Academy. This is a great conference put on by the Ezra Institute this uh, coming summer, July 12th through the 18th in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, for students 14 through 18. And it will be an excellent opportunity to help transform their worldview stimulate critical thinking, and give them an opportunity opportunity to engage with like-minded peers. The Ezra Institute is a great organization that specializes in uh, worldview instruction for Christians, and so this is a great opportunity to help uh, equip your kids for the, world's, um, the world and the culture that they are going to be launching into very soon. Register now, and you can get the early bird price of $50 off your enrollment. And don't forget to tell them that you heard this about this on The Great Awakening. Head to EzraInstitute.com to register today. All right, let's jump right into my conversation with Elisa Childers. Hey, Elisa, thanks for joining me. Oh, great to be with you, Josh. Thanks for having me. Well, I've, I've wanted to have you on for a while. Um, I just so appreciate the work you're, you do, um, kind of warning about progressive Christianity and uh, today's topic, uh, deconstruction. Um, it, you've written a, a, a new book um, with uh, Tim Barnett of Red Pin Logic, uh, The Deconstruction of Christianity. I'm about halfway through it, and it is fantastic. It could not be more timely. Uh, just this mm-hmm. past Sunday at church, uh, a couple, um, I was talking with a couple, and they asked, like, what is going on with all this deconstruction? It feels like Every uh, every couple we know with with grown adult children it yeah. seems to be struggling with with kids that are are, are deconstructing at, at you know at some process of deconstructing their faith and and so I, I'm really excited for this book to come out and to to be able to to get this into to people's hands. Um, can we start at the beginning? Like, what what is deconstruction? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, right? Because I think so many people are using that word to mean different things. So maybe I can trace how I define it through my journey a little bit, because I think that might be helpful. So over 10 years ago, I, I went through a faith crisis, and it was a crisis. It, it brought me to the edge of agnosticism. I had become intellectually persuaded that I couldn't trust my Bible, that 
all of the claims that I had believed all my life about Christianity. There was just no way to test these things, and they probably aren't even true. Now, my heart didn't want to believe that. My heart thought the gospel was beautiful. It was my core identity was a child of God. This is who I was my whole life. And so this was very agonizing and very disorienting. And then I started to hear people use this word deconstruction to describe what sounded like what happened to me. And I remember thinking, oh, like that's what happened to me. I deconstructed. And so in my first book, I even described that journey using the word deconstruction. But here's the interesting thing, Josh. So when I went on social media and I started to talk about that, people in the deconstruction space would say, you didn't really deconstruct. And I was like, what? And they would say, well, no, because you still believe like these traditional Christian beliefs. You didn't really deconstruct. And that's when I realized, okay, something else is going on here. Because what I went through was a years-long agonizing process of busting everything I believed down to the studs and rebuilding from the ground up. Well, if that's not deconstruction, what is deconstruction? And so I began to study it. And of course, it's related to topics that I talk about a lot, like progressive Christianity. And what I realized is that people are defining this word in so many different ways. Some people simply mean having some doubts. Other people mean maybe assessing all of your secondary beliefs. Like maybe you grew up with a very particular eschatology and now you're rethinking that and you're going to scripture and you're saying, is this really what the Bible teaches? And they're calling that deconstruction. Other people are calling deconstruction, maybe a conversion from historic Christianity to progressive Christianity. And still others mean it to mean deconverting from the faith altogether. So uh, when we were researching for this book, we spent tons and tons of time. We basically lived in that deconstruction hashtag. And what we discovered is that really the people that are using the word deconstruction to, de to describe more of a healthy process of pursuing truth or something like that, those are mostly just evangelicals who want to stay in the faith who are defining it that way. Because people in the deconstruction hashtag, as it manifests largely in culture, is not about retaining Christian beliefs. In fact, the only, I mean, I, I know it's bold to say this, but I think that if you really pressed the deconstructionists, they would agree if you asked the right questions, that really the only requirement is that you leave the quote unquote toxic and harmful beliefs of traditional Christianity. And that's really the core tenet of deconstruction. So it's really a conversion. It is a deconversion, not always a deconversion from religion in general, but definitely from these sort of what's perceived as rigid doctrines of Christianity, anything that would be rooted in an objective claim about reality that's true for everybody. Things like, you know, you're a sinner, you need a savior. Jesus is the only way to God. He died on a bloody cross. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. These are the kinds of things that are seen as toxic and harmful. And along with, of course, biblical ethics, all of this needs to be, you know, left and, and left behind. But the, the thing about deconstruction is that in the deconstruction hashtag, they will tell you, it doesn't matter where you land. We don't care where you land, as long as you leave this kind of toxic and harmful beliefs. And so that's really the, the nature of deconstruction. So in the book, the, we define it, and we can dig deeper into this if you want to, but in the book, we define it as a postmodern process of assessing your beliefs, but not requiring scripture as a standard. That's kind of our best crack at a definition because that's really what we're see how we see happening yeah and it, it does seem like um there's some christians that are trying to uh, put a positive spin on on that um do you think it, it's it's helpful to use that word or should christians avoid um you know confusion by by embracing that yeah well i think i don't think we should shy away from using the word but we need to use it correctly 
So what I mean by that is if you have someone in your life who all of a sudden is telling you, hey, Christian beliefs are toxic. I actually think you're an unsafe person because of your beliefs. I need some space from you. I am going to try to figure out what I believe about the world, but really they're just going with what's, you know, inside their own hearts. That is deconstruction. And it would be appropriate to use the word to describe that process. But I would really encourage Christians not to use the word if it's simply, man, I've got these deep doubts about what I believe. I just accepted them uncritically and I want to make sure they're true. I would really encourage you to not use the word deconstruction to describe that process. Here's, Here's one of the reasons. The Bible actually tells us to do that. The Bible says, test all things, hold fast to what is good. The Bible tells us to, you know, to hold fast to good doctrine. Don't waver from what you've been taught. If anyone comes preaching a different gospel, uh, let them be accursed. I mean, there's all sorts of different verses talking about discernment and making sure that what we believe lines up with what's real. We don't need a postmodern word to describe a biblical process. And so I think that my, my encouragement for Christians would be don't, don't use the word lightly and don't use it to apply to everything because it is really built on the back of postmodernism. And in broader culture, that's not what people mean when they use it. And so, and I think it can be a dangerous way to use the word too, especially with young people. I'm all about teaching young people discernment, even showing them what's in the deconstruction hashtag where you can guide them through that and help them process that. But what a lot of people don't realize is that unguided, some teen kid who's on social media can get into that hashtag and there's so much misinformation in there. There is, it's very much, I think it operates like almost like a cultic kind of propaganda and it can be very, very disorienting and it can even skew the way people see reality and how they even think through claims that are being made. So I think it's really important that we define the word properly and only use it when it applies to what is actually happening with the person who's using the word. It seems like to me that um, much like the social justice um, kind of impulse uh, from a lot of woke Christianity, the, the impulse itself is, is, is good. You know, uh, the, the problem with, with kind of woke Christianity was not that, you know, the, the, the desire to see justice and desire to see Christians more concerned about justice. It was that the, they were importing uh, the definitions of justice from critical theory. And I think a lot of the, uh, the impulse to deconstruct uh, is, is healthy in a way, because like you said, that, that is a, a biblical thing that we're called to do. You know, we want to you know, be renewed by the, uh, you know, be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So hold, constantly holding yeah. up uh, our beliefs to make sure that we're believing true things. The problem I think with deconstruction, as much like the woke church, uh, is that we're not looking to the Bible as the source of that truth. And we're looking outside of that and examining the Bible uh, according to other standards. And, and I just, um, I wonder if, um, yeah, as, as, as churches are uh, encountering this, how can we kind of respond um, in a healthy way? Mm. Well, I think there are so many different directions I could go with that question. That's really a good question because I think Christians and maybe churches and Christians in general can respond with a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. Like one of the things we see in the deconstruction hashtag is that if somebody even just hints that they're kind of maybe not sure about what they believe, it's like people just pounce and they want to all of a sudden they get invitations for all these coffee dates where people just want to fix their theology and they're not really giving them space to think things through. So I think there can be some knee-jerk reactions that the church has. 
Um, one of the things we talk about in the book that we think the church, that churches in general could do is even offer a Q&A time after sermons or maybe once a week, maybe it's on Wednesday night, where people can have the opportunity to ask any theological questions that they might have or even questions that came up during the sermon and give them that space to actually question what's been said and have a healthy discussion about it. Because I think sometimes in certain streams of Christianity, I've heard stories even of people shutting down those kinds of questions and telling people, well, you know, we don't ask those questions here or just believe or just have faith or because the Bible says so. And there's really not a reasoned answer given. And then that starts, you know, people can describe processes where they just start shoving those doubts down. They think, oh, well, doubt is bad. I shouldn't have asked that question. I'm just going to shove that down. But those things start piling up on one another. And after a course of years, it's just going to all come spilling out. And then that can land somebody in an unhealthy kind of uh, process like deconstruction. Um, You know, it's tough. It's tough to be a pastor right now. It's tough to be the church right now because there's so many different sort of expectations. And so the first thing I want to say is that as long as there is a church, there is going to be church hurt because there are sinners in churches, right? Just like there are everywhere else. And so there there isn't going to be a perfect church. There's not going to be a perfect pastor. Um, So I have a lot of grace and mercy for pastors who are trying to navigate these things. Um, but I think that some things churches could do better would be to maybe open up more of a space for those kinds of questions. And also I think churches could probably do a better job in general of, uh, confronting legitimate cases of spiritual abuse and dealing with it properly, not covering it up, not making excuses. I mean, we've seen situations where a pastor, um, is even guilty of some kind of even sexual assault and nothing happens. He just gets moved to a different church and, you know, things like that. I mean, the sheep in the pews are are hurt and they're wounded and they're going, well, who can I even trust? And so that can be a setup for things like that. So the church definitely needs to do better, I think, in some of those areas. I would love to see churches move away from the seeker-sensitive megachurch model to more of a Bible teaching, expository teaching, discipleship. Let's not try to just get butts in the seats, but let's teach the word of God and not worry about the numbers. I would love to see more of that. I think that could really stem the tide of some of this, because I think we're seeing a lot of deconstructions come out of more of a cultural Christianity type of setting. Not Certainly not all. Um, so that, that might be just a few things I could think of off the top of my head that the church could do better, but also, frankly, teaching better theology and apologetics. I mean, we send our kids to school to, te- to learn upper, upper level chemistry, but we think they can't learn theology. That's just ridiculous. And they need apologetics. And I think young people are actually hungry for apologetics. They want reasons. They want to know why what they believe is true. And um, so I think, you know, great teaching, more apologetics, more theology, not less is going to be probably a a huge help too. Yeah. Which I think is, uh, there's a temptation, I think, from a lot of Christians that well, the theology is the problem. That's what's driving people away. And so if we can just whisper about, you know, these these theological issues, um, you know, biblical sexual ethics or whatever, um, then that will help draw people back and and, right. and prevent people from, you know, uh, ha- you know, going through this process. And I, I just don't think that's I think that's very naive. How do how do we avoid not mm. kind of falling into that trap? Mm, Well, what a great observation and great question. I think 
that, um, you know, here's a, here's an interesting, this is just anecdotal in my own life, but it demonstrates exactly what you're talking about. Um, back before I had an apologetics platform, I think, I don't even know if I had a blog yet, but I was doing local apologetic series at some local churches here in the Nashville area. And there was this one church in particular, I was doing a six week series and we were about four weeks in and the pastor said, would you mind doing a week on biblical gender and sexuality and, and, and that? And I thought, well, yeah, that'd be great. So we had already done science. Like we talked about the cosmological argument. We had done biblical reliability where we talked about, um, you know, like why we trust the New Testament. We talked about textual criticism and said the kids loved all of that. They absolutely loved it. But the minute we cracked the lid on sexuality and gender, it was like, I, I, I mean this quite literally, like all hell broke loose. Um, I could feel the tension in the room. I got several very angry letters from the young people. And the pastor was flummoxed. He was thinking, how is this possible? Like, we're a conservative church. But then he realized we have not taught on this mm. at all with the youth. And this is exactly why they were fine with the science. They were fine with the biblical reliability. But you get into the, the sexuality stuff. We have not taught them. And so they've been discipled by culture. And so to your point, if you think you can whisper about these things, it's not going to help. And here's the other thing that I wanted to say um, based on that question too. One thing I've observed over and over and over in the deconstruction hashtag is that a lot of times the person who is critiquing a particular theology so very obviously doesn't understand it to begin with. Um, my co-author and I just did an interview uh, earlier today, and he brought this up where um, there, there was something he had seen online where this person was claiming to have been a Christian their whole life. I love Jesus. I did all the youth group things. I mean, everything they could do convince you that they were a real authentic Christian their whole life. And then they say the entire Christian religion is based on child sacrifice. And you're going, you obviously didn't understand the gospel to begin with, no matter how many times you went to church, if that's literally what you think it is. And so there's so much misunderstanding of real theology and, tr you know, true theological points in the deconstruction hashtag. So to your point, teaching correct theology, robust theology, even teaching like, hey, Christians disagree about this point. There's different views on this particular topic. Here's the ch here's our church's position. Here's what other people believe about it. Here's how other people interpret the scriptures. Here's why we think that's an incorrect interpretation. But engaging on that level is going to give young people the critical thinking skills, because this is the other thing, Josh, in all these deconstruction stories, so often what started someone off into the snowball was realizing maybe that there were Christians who had different views on predestination and they were only taught this one thing. And they're like, wait a second, there's other views on this. And that just rattled them or maybe, you know, the age of the earth or something like this. And they're going, I didn't even know that Christians disagreed on this stuff. And it just totally rattled them. Whereas if churches would say, look, there are people who believe this. This is why we think they're wrong. It's okay to refute it, you know, but but showing that, Christ, you know, different people, different streams have different interpretations. Now there's only one correct interpretation. We're all trying to get to what that is, but this is how they interpret it. This is how we do. I think that kind of stuff would help stem the tide a lot as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, when it comes to um, this deconstruction movement, um, one of the things that struck me is just how evangelistic it is like one of the things you wrote in in the book uh, a, a story you highlighted was a, a pastor who had gone through this deconstruction process had embraced a progressive form of christianity 
but because it was a conservative evangelical, you know, traditional evangelical church, kept those those his shifting beliefs uh, from a large part of the congregation, so that he could kind of get people, you know, onto the deconstruction train. How do we kind of um, how, how sh- what should we be looking for to kind of be uh, aware of those um, maybe the you know, kind of wolves out there that are trying to push this in evangelical spaces? Yeah, well, I think we all need to be on our guard. One of the things I always tell my kids, too, is that, you know, you have to discern everything that you take in, and especially if it claims to be Christian, you know, because sometimes I think we let our guard down and it's like, oh, it's a pastor. It's a church. It's going to be fine. But I think especially when things are called, you know, labeled Christian, we need to practice extra discernment to make sure it's it's real Christianity, that it lines up with the scriptures. And so I think that um, definitely some things to be looking out for. Yeah, that was a that was an unusual scenario that we wrote about in the book because we could actually document it with video where this pastor was basically admitting I had changed my beliefs, but I knew not everybody's with me. So I just kind of let them think I believed like them. And he even said his goal was to convert them and to get them into deconstruction. And so I certainly don't think that every pastor out there has motives that are that obvious or that nefarious. Uh, But I think people can be very self-deceived. So you can have a pastor out there who really thinks he's doing good by maybe slipping in some of this stuff to try to kind of turn the tide. And I just think we always need to be on our toes. We need to, I think it's perfectly reasonable for everybody who's, you know, listening to this or watching this, that when you're at a church and you hear something that causes you to pause, I mean, I'm certainly not saying don't overreact, don't panic, but maybe write it down, write down some thoughts, do a little scriptural research, and you have every right to call a meeting and ask your pastor some questions. And here's the thing, if you have a good pastor who it has a healthy leadership. He's going to welcome those questions and he's going to be excited that you're asking those questions. This is something I really experienced with like my current pastor when we had been searching for a church and we went from the church I, I wrote my first book about, which had gone progressive. And then we ended up in a church that kind of went off the rails in a different way. And we were just rattled and we were scared and we didn't know where we could be that was safe. And so when we sat down with my pastor for the first time, I grilled him. <laughs> I was just asking him so many. And I could tell it was invigorating him. He was so happy that somebody cared that much about theology. And he loved that we were asking those questions. And so it's, it's really okay to ask questions if something has caused you pause. Another thing you can do, and this is what a friend of mine did um, in the progressive church we were at. She stayed about a year longer than I did. And... I ran into her about a year later and I said, you know, what was it that made you realize that was off, you know? And she said, well, I, for a year, I kept a notebook during the sermons. And every time he would say something that gave me any kind of a pause or a red flag, I would write it down. And she said, after a year, I looked at my notes and I went, oh my goodness, we, we've got to get out of here. And so there are ways to do it without panicking, without overreacting, but you definitely have a right to ask questions. And to question things, and and a healthy pastor will welcome that. Yeah. Um, what um, it, it, you know, you had a, a previous career in the the Christian music industry, and it for some reason seems to be a, a hub for this. So many Christian artists um, announcing they've left the faith. Um, what <laughs> what's going on in Christian music? What's why is that? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, oh, this is a topic I could really get going on. Um, the thing that a lot of people don't realize about the contemporary Christian music industry. Now, I will I will say, this is a caveat. I have not been in the industry in over 20 years. So it may have changed. I actually was speaking recently with an artist friend of mine who said that at least on the business side of things, things have maybe gotten a little better in the last 20 years. So I I don't know. All I know was when I was in it. And the the Christ, when the when the contemporary Christian labels first formed, this was a long time ago. These were more like ministries. They were kind of, they weren't big business yet. Then they started getting bought up by secular companies. So when I was in Zoe Girl, we signed with Sparrow Records, which was an exclusively Christian record label. And then while we were there, we got bought by EMI. So EMI in New York started running or, you know, I mean, they still had people running it on the Christian side, but they were accountable to EMI. And then Capital bought, bought whatever that entity was. And so there, there's this accountability to these secular companies whose bottom line is numbers. And so the motivation in the Christian industry is not, I mean, you might have people who very sincerely want to minister. They want to spread the gospel. There's a lot of wonderful people in the industry. So I'm not certainly not saying everybody in there is a crook, but the motivation primarily for the business in general is the bottom line of, of dollars. And so you, uh, there's not a lot of discipleship. There's none. There's no discipleship. I don't even know if anybody even ever asked me about my spiritual life or um, my testimony um, or, or followed up with me on those things. How are you doing spiritually? And some artists do that for themselves. They'll bring a pastor on the road and I commend artists that do things like that or they're accountable to pastors. But you have to kind of provide that for yourself in the contemporary music industry. And and the it's almost like I don't want to generalize everybody, but there's this kind of general attitude of they don't really care what you do or what you believe as long as you kind of just stay in line with the the narrative of what it's supposed to be. So in other words, um, whatever's trendy as far as lyrics go or music go, you want to kind of, it, it's not about like truth, like prophetic truth, like speaking truth into lies. It's about like, what is, what is Christian culture kind of liking right now? Let's write a song about that. And there was a lot of pressure to do that for us. And, and even lyrically, I remember we had a song called um, about, it, I think it was called about you. And the, the lyrics of the chorus were, um, it's not about me. It's got to be all about you. Um, oh, I can't remember the rest, but that was a really popular theme. Now, you know, I'm, I think that's a good theme because that's what that, but that's what was popular at the time. So that's what we had to write about. And so it, it just kind of works that way. So as the church, you know, as things get more progressive, there's going to be less guardrails on the Christian music industry. It's kind of like, okay, if we can still make the money, still be accepted, still be a business, well, it doesn't matter if such and such comes out of the closet or such and such comes out as LGBTQ affirming if that's acceptable now. Mm. It's not about biblical truth so much. It's about the accountability to these secular companies. Yeah. Now, I, I, I know the, the second half of the book um, that I haven't gotten to yet has, um, you've got some advice for, for parents uh, who have children, uh, grown children who are, are, are going through this process. Um, what, what's some encouragement you can give to, to parents who are listening, going through that situation? Yeah, well, thank you for asking that, because this is something that is very personal to me, because I encounter this night after night when I speak at conferences or, you know, wherever it might be. I can't tell you how many times I've had maybe an elderly couple or an, an older mom 
come up to me with tears in her eyes, just saying, what you're describing is exactly what happened to my daughter. My, I raised her in the church. I raised her as best I could, but she's, you know, she's married now. She's got kids and she's deconstructed. And actually, in some cases, they've even sent no contact letters to their parents. They've uh, said, we don't want you in our lives anymore. You can't see your grandkids. I was just talking with a lady maybe two weeks ago who she said, I don't know what to do because my daughter has deconstructed. She won't have relationship with me. She still lets me pick up my granddaughter from school once a week. And she lets me take her to church on Wednesday nights. She said, but my daughter has told me the second anybody mentions the word hell, you will never see her again. And I mean, it's like she just got her mom over this barrel, just like, you know, almost just like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, it's like threats, you know, to take the grandkids away. And this is something that's so common. So I appreciate you asking about the encouragement because that is really the reason we wrote the book. This book is really not the book you're going to give to the person in your life who's deconstructing. It's not written for them or to them. Um, it's not it's not written to the adult child that's deconstructed, that's cut off their parent. It's written to the parent. It's written to their spouses, their loved ones, their friends. And, um, and it's interesting. It just spans the gamut. I mean, I even had a high school girl stand up in a Q&A and ask me, what do I do? My parents are deconstructing mm. and I want to remain faithful to Jesus and I want to honor my parents, but I don't know how to navigate this. And so it, it affects so many different types of relationships. So my, my biggest piece of advice, and this is what we talk about in the book, is you really do need to consider what your relationship is to this person. Because how, let's say, a, a wife might navigate this with a deconstructing husband is going to look a little different than how maybe a, a parent of a high school kid who's deconstructing might handle that navigate, navigation. And that's going to be a lot different than an, like an elderly parent with an adult child. So consider the relationship and the relationship dynamics. Um, in some cases, like the case with the spouse, you, you're not going to be able to, you know, just you're going to be in the same house all the time. So you're going to have to find a way to make peace with what's going on. Um, whereas in other scenarios, you, there's maybe a little more distance or separation, but pray for wisdom. It's really okay to back off. I, I think this is something that's counterintuitive to Christians this is our number one piece of advice that due to the nature of deconstruction, because um, your beliefs are viewed by the deconstructionist as, as being really toxic and harmful, they've probably already decided you're not a safe person. Their impetus to disconnect from you and their church family is very strong. So it's really okay to back off. Just try to stay in their life. It's sort of like triage, you know, when there's a big accident and everybody starts getting taken into the ER. Well, the guy with the punctured lung is going to get treated before the guy with the broken leg because you have to do triage like that. And so it's really okay to kind of do some triage. What's the most important thing right now? Well, maybe the most important thing is just maintaining the relationship. And it's okay to back off and not try to fix their theology right away. Just stay in their life. Let them see the peace of Jesus in your life because I can promise you there's no peace. There, there is no joy in that hashtag of deconstruction where they're living online. It's very cultish, I think. Um, you know, I, I've said that a couple times and I'm sure I'll get pushed back on that, but I do think it's very cultish. It's like this brainwashing that happens. And so you almost have to look at your loved one as if they're in a cult and, and you need to figure out a way to love them, maintain that relationship. Now, if there's a relationship where you can have some back and forth, there's a welcome conversation, then you can ask some really good questions to try to, um, first seek to understand where they're coming from and what's caused this. 
but you're going to also have to study up because they're going to challenge everything that you believe. I have spout that's especially between the spouses. I hear a lot of that where it might be a wife whose husband is deconstructing and she'll say, this is what he said today. What do I say back? And really like you got to really start studying or you just have to have peace with what, where you're at and ask him a lot of questions that might kind of sow some doubt in him. But, um, ultimately pray, never underestimate the power of prayer. You know, we, we are not powerless, even when we can't have some of those conversations, pray for your loved one and ask God for wisdom. He will give it to you. And we do end the book with hope because there is hope. I don't think God, God is sovereign. He's not up there going, oh my gosh, all these people are deconstructing. What are we going to do? No, I, I, I don't know what he's got up his sleeve, but I think we might see at the end of this rainbow, when people find out there's no pot of gold at the end of there, we might see some some mass conversions come out of this. Who knows? Maybe a lot of these people who have deconstructed were had never really trusted in Jesus in the first place. And maybe this is the seedbed of that. So pray to that end and have hope knowing that God is not surprised by this. He is sovereign. And this isn't something he's biting his nails over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I always try to remember that where someone is at right now is not necessarily where they're going to end up. And so yeah, right. the, the prayer God is, is not uh, done with, with anyone until that final day comes. Um, now, for those of us with, with younger kids that are still in the house, that we're, we're trying to uh, raise with a biblical worldview and on a solid foundation of scripture, um, looking at a lot of, uh, you know, parents that are further along that are experiencing this, that, that, you know, they felt like they were doing everything they could and they're still going through this. How do we resist kind of a, a fatalism? Like, what's the point, you know, mm. all of this effort yeah. to try and instill the right beliefs. It just seems like, you know, it, it's, it, it's sometimes futile. Mm. Yeah, well, let's address that that beginning part there about parents who have kids who are still in the home, maybe teenagers or younger. I think it's so important to understand that the nature of deconstruction is largely happening on social media. This, in my opinion, is very much like a social contagion. We've talked about, you know, in apologetics and in some of these circles, we've talked about the social contagion of even the, the transgender ideologies. Well, I also think that the deconstruction thing has a very much a social contagion aspect to it. So if you have young teenagers that are maybe, you know, if, if they're on social media, I would strongly recommend not allowing your, your younger kids to have social media. Now, that doesn't mean I think you shouldn't expose them to what's out there. I pull up videos that I watch with my daughter and, you know, even some TikToks and things like that, that I'll watch with her and I'll guide her through it. We'll reason through it. We'll talk about it. But there is no way on earth I would let her have unfettered access to TikTok. She's 15 years old and her frontal lobe isn't fully developed yet. So while your kids are in your home, you still have a lot of power and control. But I would urge you to expose them to some of this in an environment that is controlled, where you can guide them and you can disciple them on how to navigate some of these things. And I think a great way to engage teenagers, even if you've never done that before, if you're, you're sitting here thinking like, I've never really done like this kind of thing with my kids, this is going to be awkward to just start. Start with a TikTok video that you show your kids about somebody making a claim against Christianity. Ask them, how would you answer this? What do you think about this? 
have a discussion about it. Let them see that you're not scared of it. Let them see that it doesn't ruffle your feathers, but you can teach your kids how to engage with some of these things. I think that's really important. Um, and, and also just to the parent out there that would say, well, this is just futile. Actually, let me, let me address a couple of different ways I've seen parents sort of approach this. So one would be that where they might just say, you know, it just seems like it's pointless to try to teach them. Well, it's not pointless because nobody would say that about math. You wouldn't say that about reading. You wouldn't say, oh, algebra is pointless. I'm not going to make my kid learn math. Everybody knows that even if you're not going to be doing algebra in your daily job, it's good for your brain. It's good for learning. It's good to learn that kind of stuff. It develops your intelligence. It develops your critical thinking. And so we make our kids do these things because it's good for them. And so I would encourage you to apply that same type of thinking to what we teach them about God, because it is in the same realm as math and science. This is our, these are objective facts that we're talking about. We're not talking about just somebody's favorite flavor of ice cream. Christianity is objectively true, and we need to teach that to our kids. So I would encourage that parent. But I, I do see this another uh, reaction in parents, I think, as we see the deconstruction movement sort of blossom. And that is, and I've seen this in, in some of my friends, where they see these deconstruction stories and they think, oh my gosh, everything I do is going to make my kid deconstruct. You know, if I teach them too much scripture, it's going to make them deconstruct. Or if we have too much family devotional, that that's going to be in their deconstruction story. Oh, I had to, every morning I had to do this. Or if I, you know, I'm too rigid on sexuality, I'm too rigid on this, then they're going to deconstruct. And I would just encourage you to not fall into that trap at all. We have to teach our kids the truth. And you know what? I, I even tease my daughter. I, when I make mistakes, I'll say, well, you know, you can save that one for your deconstruction story. And she laughs because she knows like one of the things I can model for her is true repentance and humility and say, I really blew it. I blew it today as a mom. I shouldn't have done that. I sinned against you. I, I ask for your forgiveness. And to model that kind of humility and repentance, I think is so important, but also saying, but it's my job to teach you what's true about the world. And so you're going to go on and make, you're going to decide for yourself what you believe about math and science and all these things. But my job is to teach you what's true and to not shy away from teaching those things. And if you can, like if it's, if you've got young kids, start very, very young, having these conversations, letting them know what people and culture believe, prepare them that they're a worldview minority. They're not, the way we believe is not the way most people in the world believe today but it's what's true. So we, we want to teach you what's true. And then, you know, this is the thing too. Kids end up all sorts of different ways. I've met people who grew up with violent drug addict parents who, and then the kid becomes this really strong Christian, right? And then I've met kids who grew up in these wonderful Christian homes and they deconstruct. Kids go, it's, it's not entirely on you. Your job is to teach them the way they should go, to teach them the word of God, teach them what's true. And, and the rest is up to God and them. And so I would just encourage parents to be steady and not try to go to not react with extremes as we see this thing blossom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And remember, God loves our, our kids more than we could ever possibly That's love right. them. And I think, you know, that we, it, it, as much as we want to control outcomes, we have to, um, you know, be faithful in the, the calling that he's given us to, to uh, raise these kids. But we also have to hold them up with a, a trust in God that, you know, you, you've got a, a path for them and uh, just bathe them in prayer and, and pray that he would hold them fast. Um, what are, so if you're, let's say you're a parent who 
recognizes um, the need for this, but you don't feel equipped, what are some resources that you like to recommend? Mm. Well, I think the first resource I would recommend for parents is the Mama Bear Apologetics book. I contributed three chapters to that book, and it was me and a group of maybe, I think, nine other ladies that got together on Zoom every Monday night for months and hammered out this book, the philosophy behind the book. And basically what we're teaching parents is like, here's, here are the ideas in culture. You need to understand them first. Now here's how you can teach these to your, you can teach, you know, a biblical response to these things to your children. And it's very practical in that sense. And so I would recommend that one for sure. If you have the opportunity as a parent to homeschool, I think that 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 is, I know not everybody has that opportunity or that um, option, but we've now been homeschooling. This is our second year. And it's so amazing. We just love it because, you know, you can really craft the curriculum. And so I would really recommend my friend Elizabeth Urbanowitz's curriculum called Worldview or Foundation Worldview curriculum. If you have kids that are middle school and younger, it's just phenomenal. It's one of the things I really love about it is it really teaches them how to think critically, but it also teaches them what other religions believe and then teaching them how to respond to those things biblically and, and rooted in reality. But I also love that her approach is not like Sesame Street where everything changes every, you know, 30 seconds, but it's very much more Mr. Rogers where it, it kind of cultivates a longer attention span. So um, those are two great resources, but honestly, the best resource for a kid is you. It's to be able to, you know, you learn these things and then just ask your kids questions like, what's your biggest question about God? What are you thinking about? Um, what, are, what are kids saying at school about these things if, you know, if they go to school? And just trying to engage your kids on that level and, and teaching them that you're, you're a safe place to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah, we, we sat down with our oldest and watched uh, Matt Walsh's documentary and just pause and like, yeah. What do you think about that argument there? What, yeah. what do you, what? And so it was, it, it's been helpful to kind of, you know, talk through these, uh, these issues with them. And it's not something that trying to hide them, you know, hide from them, but we want right. to be able to, you know, them to, to recognize it on their own and to spot the, the fallacies on their own. And, um, you know, my second born, uh, 13 year old, um, just, I think yesterday was watching a review of a, a, a movie on, um, on YouTube. And I was kind of, uh, listening to it and I was like, Hmm, there's some problems in that. I wonder if he'll, he's going to pick up on that. And about halfway through, he's like, yeah, I don't think this is right. I'm not going to listen to any more of this. And so I was like, yes, oh, wow. <laughs> sometimes you get those parenting wins where you can say, okay, it, yeah, it is you working. Do. Well, it, it is working. And here's the thing too, like this might be controversial to people. Um, and that's okay because I think it also depends on your kid's maturity level and like how much conversations you've had about these things beforehand. But with my daughter, we had had a lot of conversation, conversations about sexuality and gender. And I, it was about two years ago. I know this is, we had canceled Disney plus after this, but we still had Disney plus back then. And there was this little short that Disney had produced called out. And it, it was about this man coming out of the closet to his parents. And I watched it with my daughter and like, we just kept hitting the pause button and even recognizing like, do you, do you recognize how, you know, they're playing on the emotions here? Like, and what emotions are they playing on and how are they portraying the father? And then what are the good people doing? What are the bad people doing? And, and just asking these kind of worldview questions. And I really think that was a valuable resource because then, you know, she's think, 
you know, she doesn't have to sneak that stuff or go to Google because we'll discuss it. Like we'll talk about these things. And so obviously now, now that's maybe not something I would do with a, di a different child who had a different maturity level. And maybe we hadn't had that conversation. So each kid is different, but I do think just a little bit of exposure is important in yeah. having those discussions. Yeah. And, and you know, as much as we want to, um, you know, we want easy solutions. Parenting is hard work. It's going to require the yeah. time. We're going to have to to dig into these issues and um, and really, you know, I, I don't think we can just outsource it to and, and hope that the youth group is taking care of it. Um, yeah. What um, uh, you know, we're getting uh, close on time, but I I, I I do like to to end the show with um, you know, some things that's giving you hope. Our our. It, this can be this is a heavy thing because it, it really is i feel like we're we're still in the early stages of deconstruction um and seeing it kind of blossom um are you seeing any any stories of people who've kind of moved through that um and and are, are kind of coming back to christ um or is it is it still um is that still in the future hmm. uh okay so I, I haven't seen a lot of it. I'll be honest. I haven't seen a lot. I've seen a few, but generally right now, I think we're still on the arc where, where we're seeing kind of the unfold, you know, the, the fallout from it. But I do have hope. And here's where I have a lot of hope. And that's in Gen Z. So both my kids are Gen Z. And I travel and speak to Gen Z kids all over the country. I speak at Christian high schools. I've done, uh, I work with Impact 360 and Summit Ministries. So I'm speaking to Gen Z kids all throughout the year. And what I'm observing in that generation among the Christians, the true Christians, is a real confidence in what they believe. I, I have observed that where they're, they're not afraid to stand up for what they believe is true. And it's like God is giving them this courage. And I think we're going to see more of that because they're, I think they are seeing the chaos in, their, in the world they're seeing, and, and you know what, even, even un, I, I've been seeing a lot of secular people mm. that are seeing that. For Here's a perfect example. Um, Tim and I were filming the curriculum for our book, which will come out a couple months after the book does, where it's like this whole video curriculum. And I was, you know, my, I was in the makeup chair and the makeup artist was, was doing my, my makeup. And um, she was talking about the event she had been at the day before. She was not a Christian. And she was doing my makeup and she was like, I love doing the Christian shoots. And I said, really? And she goes, yeah. She goes, everything people say about Christians is so wrong. She's like, they're the nicest people. She said, and what I love is there's just peace. There's generally peace on the set. And I don't have to memorize a hundred pronouns. She <laughs> said, I, I go to the, you know, the, the ones that aren't Christians, like it's, it's so stressful because you have to remember how everybody identifies and all the different pronouns. And then, you know, people get all testy about it. And it's just like, it's just so nice at the Christian shoot. So thank you so much for having me. I thought, wow. I mean, that's crazy to me that the world is seeing like, yes, this is chaos. This is, this is insanity. And I think a lot of Gen Zers are seeing that. And I think we're going to see a lot of these kids that, that are, are they're going to, they're going to stand up and they're not going to be ashamed. And I'm really encouraged with what I'm seeing with Gen Z. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm seeing the same thing with, with secular people kind of identifying the insanity. And I, that's my my biggest fear is that the church is going to miss this opportunity to yeah. really stand up and and speak truth that a world in chaos really 
is desperate to hear. And I think, uh, I think there is so much opportunity for the gospel and, and we just have to throw off a lot of those kind of seeker sensitive uh, approaches that we've, we've embraced over the years and really lean into bringing the gospel to these issues. It's not an either or like oh, we can address this or we can focus on the gospel. No, no, no. Let's bring the gospel to these stories, to yeah. these, uh, these issues that are, that are causing this kind of, um, this friction. Um, so yeah, I'm excited too. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, Elisa, thank you so much. Um, this has been a great conversation. Uh, where can people find your work? Well, they can go to the Deacon. Well, actually, okay. So if you want to pre-order the book, uh, it comes out January 30th, I believe. But if you pre-order the book, you can order it anywhere and then keep your receipt number and then go to the deconstruction of Christianity.com. And you can fill out a little form and that will send you immediately. You'll get an email back with a free chapter early. And that's our advice chapter, which I think is the most practical of all the chapters we have. And then you'll also get 60 days free access to the audiobook. So there's some really great bonuses if you pre-order. So I'd really encourage people to do that. But you can also find me at alisachilders.com, the Elisa Childers podcast. And of course, I'm on YouTube at Elisa Childers. And um, we're just talking about this stuff all the time on the podcast. So uh, alisachilders.com. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Definitely check that out. Uh, always has really great guests on there. Well, uh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Elisa. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. That's our show for today. Big thanks to Elisa Childers for joining me for this conversation. I think this is a growing problem within the church. And so if you or a loved one um, hasn't already come into contact with uh, this kind of deconstruction phenomenon, um, you probably will at some point as loved ones um, or friends begin to um, kind of go through this process. I think this would be a, an incredibly valuable resource uh, if you were to share this episode with someone in your life who uh, is maybe already uh, facing this. Um, share it with your, your pastor, um, you know, as this starts showing up in churches, I think um, Elisa's work here um, is really helpful to kind of think through how we should um, think about this, how, how to process um, this, and how to relate to people in, in your life that are kind of going through that deconstruction process. Um, I'll have a link in the show notes where you can purchase this book. Uh, it's an excellent resource, and I highly recommend it, along with uh, her previous book, um, Another Gospel About Progressive Christianity, because uh, a lot of these uh, deconstruction stories don't end in like completely abandoning, um, you know, some semblance of faith, but uh, a lot of times end up in progressive Christianity, which... Uh, Elisa explains, you know, so well in that book that it, it really is another gospel. It's not, it's not biblical Christianity. So uh, two excellent resources there. There'll be links in the show notes where you can uh, purchase those. If you haven't subscribed to the show, go ahead and hit like and subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. If you're listening, uh, ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify are always appreciated and help uh, you know expand the reach of the show. So until next time, I will talk to you soon.